The following message is brought to you by the Ezra Institute for Contemporary Christianity. To learn more about the Ezra Institute's mission to advance the Lordship of Christ, please visit www.ezrainstitute.ca. Hello and welcome to the podcast for Cultural Reformation, brought to you by the Ezra Institute for Contemporary Christianity. This is the show for culture makers, where we help you think about the nature of human beings, what we do and make with the raw materials of God's creation, and how those cultural activities reflect our relationship to God, to one another, and to the world. Today, we have a special field episode of the podcast. Joe Boot was at the Palace of Westminster in London and talked with our friends over at the Holy Political Podcast on the subject of sphere sovereignty. We hope you enjoy this episode, and I'd also invite you to go and check out the Holy Political Podcast. And I'm here now again with Reverend Dr. Joe Boot. Joe, thanks again for uh, taking time to join us and chat to us. Now, last time you were on the podcast, um, we talked about a whole range of issues, um, particularly about some people's view that you know Christians should be lib- political liberals in a plural society, all that kind of thing. Uh, and one of the things you started to touch on was the idea of sphere sovereignty, which I thought was a very helpful way of starting to think about church versus government versus family versus civil society and all those different issues that can get conflated areas that can get conflated um and so we thought it'd be helpful just to think a little bit more about that go into a little bit more depth can you sort of unpack what is sphere sovereignty and where does it help us Mm -hmm. probably the place to start would be just the reminder that from your sphere sovereignty is a christian concept uh and uh so it's not something that's going to uh, immediately get massive buy-in from uh the secular uh, order, because it begins with the assertion of the uh, sovereignty of God and creation. So the idea of sphere sovereignty is essentially that God uh, has created various structures from the very beginning um, and given them a particular norm or direction um, from uh, the nature of the human person, marriage, family, uh, the church institute and the state as it uh, expresses itself uh, historically. So that there are actually norms which uh, govern these different spheres. So it begins with the uh, doctrine of uh, creation. And I guess the, I think uh, perhaps I mentioned before that I, I recognize that the, the expression sphere sovereignty is not in the Bible uh but in the same way you know the the word trinity is not in the bible but we discern through careful study of scripture the, the doctrine of the trinity and i think through through careful study of scripture we discern uh this idea this doctrine of uh, sphere sovereignty um probably the most helpful starting point after the sovereignty of god and the doctrine of creation is to say that it's rooted in the notion that human beings are created as office bearers, uh, that human beings were put in the garden of God uh, to, well, the Bible talks about rule and subdue, to exercise dominion in the earth under God as vice gerents, uh, that, that human beings are office bearers. And of course, an office bearer immediately suggests limitation. So if you occupy an office, uh, you occupy, you have a limited uh, function. And uh, so you have in the idea of sphere sovereignty, uh, this foundational idea that there is 
there can be no, there cannot be more than one principle of absolute sovereignty of total sovereignty that can't be shared that can only belong to that can only have one source absolute sovereignty can only have one source and that then within creation within the structure of creation god has delegated um, spheres of uh, delegated sovereignty that have a limited jurisdiction uh, jurisdiction a whole variety of different spheres that are all answerable and accountable uh, directly to god uh, so actually to Christ. So for the Christian, of course, Christ is the creator. In him, all things cohere. Uh, he is the perfect embodiment of humanity, of manhood, of humanity, of what it means to be human as a servant of God. And he's called our prophet, our priest and our king. Those are three offices that appear in scripture. So Christ uh, holds total sovereignty and then under Christ, as uh, we are restored in Christ to our office, uh, there are jurisdictions, there are spheres and uh, limited jurisdiction that we have in various aspects of life. And in each case, we're answerable to God. I think one of the reasons that this often doesn't immediately leap out for people in the contemporary context is that we have tended to limit the religious rule of Christ to the institutional church, to one sphere, not recognizing that Christ as prophet, priest, and king is for the Christian Lord, uh, he's kurios, he's Jesus Christ, the Lord, and that he occupies the position of total sovereignty, as the Apostle John says in the book of Revelation. He is the ruler of the kings of the earth. And so that position is the starting point for the Christian the second point is the the fact that human beings are office bearers and therefore uh, our power and our jurisdiction is always limited. And the three most obvious spheres that are apparent to us, I think, immediately in human experience and in the Bible are the spheres of the family, of the church and of the state. So talk then a little bit about those to help sort of put some colour into this. Um, in what way, what does it mean for the church to be separate from the family and for the government to be separate from the family and from the church because obviously um families are affected by the by the actions of government um obviously there are places in scriptures where it talks about church discipline including in the context of families and talks about morality in the context of families yeah. so what what does it mean that those are, are different spheres what does that mean in reality sure so um the, the the kind of i mean you could call them areas but i can the image of spheres is kind of quite helpful mm. Um, because um, these spheres touch, they're not sort of isolated, kind of like circles, abstract concepts that don't that, that, that don't meet. I mean, you can think of them more like the Olympic rings, if you will. You know, the, these spheres are irreducible to one another. You can't reduce the family to the church or the family to the state, and vice versa. But they are touching, so they they're 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 intertwined inescapably in God's creation order. So uh, practically speaking, uh, if you look at this idea of office, well, in, in Scripture, uh, under Christ, the husband is the head of the wife. As Christ is head of the church. Now, I know that's not uh, necessarily popular, but it is the teaching of Paul. So there is like an order in the marriage relationship in the family. There's office bearing there. And then, of course, mum and dad as parents have authority over over the children and have the right to discipline their children and raise their children in the fear and admonition of the Lord and so forth. So in that area of um, uh, of marriage and raising 
children, there is a sphere of sovereignty. There's a jurisdiction there of the family. Uh, and um, actually, when you look in the Bible, the family's jurisdiction is very, very expansive. It's the it's the first school. It's the first place where you learn economics and government. It's the it's the place where our education is directed. And to a large degree in, in the West, we still at least tacitly recognize that parental authority. Now, of course, if the um, members of the family uh, move into some criminal activity, um, or if I'm a, um, a wife beater or a child abuser, then because the state's role as a sphere of authority is public justice, um, and my activity now uh, has has brought me into uh, has brought me into because of the nature of the touching character of these spheres, I'm now brought also into the jurisdiction there by my activity of the state. In the same way, one would hope that in a faithful church, if I am um, abusive to my family in this way, then I'm going to be placed under church discipline and barred from the Lord's, Lord's table. So uh, that doesn't mean the elders have the or the church have the have the right to govern the family as such. But in their area of jurisdiction, they have the right to suspend me from the Lord's table and put me under discipline. The state has the right to throw me in prison. Uh, so that that would be one area. And similarly with the, the life of the church, there, there's no there can be no church without the family. I mean, there wouldn't be anybody in the church if there was no such thing as a family. Uh, and actually, interestingly, the church is governed in terms of a similar pattern uh, to the family in that um, the notion of, of eldership and leadership in the church is in a sense patterned after the family. We call the church the family of God. And again, just as Christ is head of the family, he's head of his church. The Bible's very, very clear about that. So all submission in these relationships and mutual submission within marriage and in the life of the church is all as unto Christ, because it's an order. It's a form of government that God is establishing and has established. Uh, and so uh, in the life of the church, we have another form of government. We often don't think of the church as a government, because when we use the word government in modern, the modern secular world, we only ever think of the state. But actually, Many things govern us. The family governs us. The church governs us. Our vocational lives govern us. The different clubs and, and businesses and so forth that we're involved with govern us in some way. Uh, so, there's, so that's civil government, but that's not the only form of government. So the church is a government and uh, it's there to um, ensure that the confessional uh, standards of that body of believers is upheld and and that the commitment of membership usually most churches have a membership usually involves a certain amount of commitment to the standards of the christian life usually giving to the church community uh, and um, that's a voluntary association family once you're in a family is not so much a voluntary association you're, you're either in a family or, or, or you're not um, marriage is voluntary to begin with and then of course it's a binding um, commitment so um, church membership is a, is a voluntary association in terms of a local church and, and that governs us uh, but of course if the church itself got involved in some kind of embezzlement or um, uh, theft of its members or, or was some kind of bizarre cult that was involved in criminal activity then of course the, the character of the state would then touch upon the life uh, there of those individuals within the church body. Uh, the state, uh, the state, again, couldn't exist without the family. 
there'd be no people to govern. Um, and uh, in, in many respects, the, the, the Western state has not existed really without the church for many, many centuries in one form or another. If you look at the coronation oath of uh, our current queen even uh, in fact the coronation oath really you can track that all the way back to king solomon and and as you look at the nature of our coronation oath it's reminiscent of all of that uh, a commitment there was made that recognized the total sovereignty of christ and of god and the um and representing in herself the totality of government because of course parliament is her government as such um, she placed herself oath to submit herself to Christ's lordship, the law and gospel of God. So both you need for a state to exist. The state is just a differentiated public. After all, uh, it needs the family and the family must hold as voting members of a, of, of, a, of a body politic. We hold the state constantly accountable and the state is accountable to God. And historically in the West has made that has done that by oath. Whether you go back to the solemn league and covenant of, uh, I think, the 15th or 16th century there, uh, right through to a modern coronation oath. You see this, the, the touching nature of these spheres and yet their irreducibility to one another. That's really helpful. So as, as you say, it, it, there is this sort of air of um, when something is criminal, it comes under the government's um, jurisdiction. And when it's um, suitable for church discipline, it comes up. But I guess that's that that the the challenge is often that grey area and um, or, or exactly where we draw those lines so that we don't get overreach in any direction mm-hmm. um, or or indeed a lack of um, taking responsibility on the part of the state or the church um, or the family. Um, one recent example uh, I thought was was quite interesting on this was um, the example of a, a, a Scottish government policy uh, called the Named Person Scheme, which seeks, as I understand it, to um, to give children a way to report any um, abusive situations they might be in. And the way that it does that is to give every child in the country um, an an appointed state guardian to whom they report, as it were. Um, This has actually faced lots of legal challenges and it's currently not actually happening fully yet. I've heard Christians on either side of that. Some, you know, talk emphasising that children, it's the only way that children can be protected. Others making the, this sort of case around around the the sovereignty of the family and that this yeah. undermines that sovereignty. How how does how do we apply um, sphere sovereignty to an area a policy like this in a way that helps us clar- clarify our thinking? Mm-hmm. Well, I think it's a terrifying prospect, quite frankly, what they're proposing there in terms of sort of a uh, Orwellian type uh, measures. I think it's interesting to notice, actually, that the the problem, the perceived problem that they're trying to solve uh, has in part been produced by state overreach. So um, in one sense, what we have with the modern state is it actually creates problems uh, that then it seeks to solve by more statism, by more activity of the state. Uh, and they think that uh, increasingly that um, some sort of um, state money or new state legislation is going to solve various social problems that actually aren't political problems at root in any case. So when you have, for example, the decay of um, the Christian faith, uh, as we've seen in the West and in Scotland has been very rapid, you have the decay of the family. Uh, You have the decay of taking seriously 
oaths before God. You're making, you know, when you make an oath in a church to, 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 to get married, you make it before God and before the community. Well, um, in a culture that begins to abandon God, perjury and oath, oaths don't, don't mean much anymore. Uh, and so with the, with the broad, very widely recognized collapse of the family and all the social consequences that flow from the collapse of the family, the modern state is now trying to solve the problem of this burdensome situation because broken families um, cost the state a huge amount of money. Because the family is a form of government and the family looks after children throughout their infancy and usually pays for them to go through college and then looks after them if they fall on difficult times later on and cares for parents in old age and so on. When the family stops doing that because it's breaking down, religiously collapsing, um, and the state has kind of encouraged that by redefining marriage, by uh, with um, what's approaching really uh, no-fault divorce, uh, with um, the loss of any sort of, uh, or, or increasing, I mean, I'm from Canada, so sometimes I get muddled up with my laws, but uh, uh, the, the, the loss of tax benefits, uh, the loss of a privileging, if you will, of marriage in society. When that happens and the family erodes, then the state has a serious problem. It has a massive cost problem because the social cost of delinquency, uh, criminality, academic failure and so forth. And then the state increasingly has to step in as a surrogate father because husbands are abandoning uh, homes and children. So there's a sense of pressure on the state then to solve this problem. And of course, you even get cases of abuse. Um, but my answer to that is you don't solve uh, problems that's, that uh, state overreach has caused by more state overreach. You only create more evils. Uh, and this is definitely a case where uh, the notion of a, of, a, of a kind of state official to whom a child reports outside of the family, uh, you can see how this could be uh, misused. I mean, I, I hate to go to the boogeyman of, uh, of, of communist uh, Russia or China or, or, or the Nazis in, in uh, the 30s and 40s. But this kind of, you know, um, people reporting and telling tales on their own parents, children telling tales in the Nazi youth on their own parents for what they said or did and so forth. Uh, the, the potential for misuse for this is terrifying. Um, and uh, look, if you're a parent and, and you've got a difficult teenager... I mean, you can see how even then uh, a child who maybe is angry uh, with their parents, um, uh, but this could easily be very badly misused and children taken away from loving homes and loving families. And if British values start to be redefined in a direction that's uh, anti-Christian or, is, uh, or, or, or could be interpreted in that way, then at what point do we have, I mean, in Canada right now, we've got a situation where um, uh, if in Ontario, if your child uh, wants to identify as the opposite sex and you don't support that with uh, provide as parents by providing, taking them to counselling and possible hormone therapy, you might have your children taken away for an abuse and neglect. So this kind of overreach of the state, I think, is a terrifying thing. And I think sphere sovereignty very much helps us here, because as you pointed out, the very essence of tyranny 
Uh, from this point, from the Christian point of view, is when any one of these spheres tries to treat the other in a part-to-whole relationship, that it tries to envelop the others and claims total sovereignty for itself. And this is why the sovereignty of God and the Lordship of Christ is so important. Well, what's interesting in what, in what you said there, one of the things was um, it's not just perhaps sort of pernicious overreach, but it is trying to use one sphere to solve the issues of another. Yes. So in the same way, actually, as you know, government stepping in to solve church governance issues or, or whatever it is, there is actually an issue of um, fam, you know, fam, family sovereignty is there not just for convenience because actually it is, it is the best way to solve. Yes. In fact, because it is a, I would go so far as to say it is a structural norm, that it is a creational norm. So actually all you do is create massive problems when you violate it. Uh, and so violations of these norms never end up in a good place. And so you're absolutely right. You can't, in the end, solve what is a family problem um, through some sort of statist measure. It's not going to work. I'd be interested to hear your views on, where, on the ways in which Christians often get this wrong in either direction these days, or historically. Um, recently, Tim Farron gave a prominent lecture at Theos about um, liberalism and Christianity and, and Christianity in the public square in these days. And one of the analogies he used was to compare liberalism with 4th century Christianity. And, uh, and he said in the 4th century in Rome, Christians um, won the cultural battle uh, in that it, it, Christianity became the establishment worldview. Up to that point, there had been 300 years of, of persecution and exclusion for followers of Jesus Christ. Christianity was um, an emancipationist doctrine at that time. It then became... Adopted as the official religion of the empire, with a few years it had gone from being emancipationist to, at the centre of the empire at least, being oppressive in its worst forms. He used to say the analogy of um, water outside the boat is good, water inside the boat is, is disastrous. Would you say that as an example of of the spheres um, mixing too much, or, or do you think he's slightly misunderstood the situation? I think it's very easy to oversimplify. Uh, what was going on with Constantine um, and uh, later emperors. Uh, Constantine really uh, was just recognising that the most stable part of a collapsing Roman world was the Christian community. Um, and he saw it as a potential glue um, for for the empire. Um, and of course, it really does depend on what is the, um, the, the Roman, the original Roman attitude in terms of government um, was... Uh, a kind of state-sponsored polytheism, uh, in which very clearly it was the state that was claiming absolute sovereignty. It was claiming total sovereignty. In fact, you know, the worship of the emperor, I may have touched on this last time, um, the, the emperor cult was basic to actually most of pagan antiquity, the, the idea of uh, essentially a religious worship being owed to and an absolute allegiance being owed to st uh, the state in uh, the emperor or king or monarch. Um, so in many respects, um, the, the Christian influence on Rome uh, began to break uh, that idea of the state. Now, it'd be very easy to romanticize the first three or so hundred years and say, well, that's the kind of ideal condition. Well, then what of the state? What of government? How is government, uh, the, uh, the civil government and the state supposed to function? I mean, is it um, you, you one would have to ask um Mr. Ferron there, whether he means that actually the the, the, the Christian faith should have no um, 
uh, influence uh, over uh, civil government. This is why I said the church institute in religion and religious rule um, of Christ, they can't um, be conflated with one another. They're not identical. So if we limit the rule of Christ to uh, the church institute, then what of the family? What of uh, the body politic. So it's easy to op- oversimplify that period. Um, Peter Lighthart's book, um, Defending Constantine, is an interesting read uh, on that. Uh, having said that, there is absolutely no question that as the uh, Middle Ages progressed uh, on into the High Middle Ages, what really developed was a conflict between church and state as to who was really going to claim total sovereignty. Were the emperors going to anoint the popes or were the popes going to anoint the emperors? Uh, Where did uh, absolute sovereignty really lie? And I would say that uh, a a proper differentiating of the spheres because of Christianity arose, of course, in the lap of the Roman Empire. And there there was a kind of synthesis going on there for a long time when it came to these issues of political life between pagan doctrine ideas of politics and what I would think of as a, as a particularly scriptural idea of politics. So if you look at ancient Israel, for example, the office of priest and king were clearly separated. Their jurisdictions were separated. Saul lost his kingdom, frankly. King Saul lost his kingdom for presuming to act as priest. So there was, even within national Israel, a clear distinction with what we would in modern terms call church and uh, state even though it was recognised that both king and high priest were under God. So there have been a lot of mistakes in the Christian past. I wouldn't want to wriggle around that at all, uh, where uh, sort of an ecclesiocracy, the attempt to, um, for, in a sense, the church to swallow the state, uh, has, has been there in our past in the same way of the modern, very, very strong tendency today um, for uh, the state absolutism, when any sphere absolutizes itself, starts to swallow the others. And of course, you even have that with the family, because what is a mafia uh, except the family blood uh, being absolutized so that it essentially swallows the state itself and even dictates what's happening to the church? Um, And I don't want to point out particular countries, but we know where very powerful mafias which are basically blood relationships, blood families, controlling uh, politicians and controlling the church for their own ends. So whenever you have that um, crossing of those or conflating of those spheres, you have a problem. And the church has certainly been complicit in that. That does not mean, I don't think, though, that you, you, you can't have a confession or a confessionally Christian nation. One of the other things that um, came up recently uh, in, in this Tim Farron lecture was uh, the idea of shared values. You've touched a little bit on, on a nation's values and there's been this debate in the, in the UK about British values and what are these British values we, we unite around. Uh, and, and Tim Farron in his was very blunt and actually said there are no shared values. He says when people, when people talk about shared values, they're actually just, it's an attempt to impose values on other people. And he said, it's time, to be honest with, with, it's time to be honest with each other. We do not have shared values. And the assumption that we do is, is dangerous. Mm-hmm. To what extent do you think that is true in a, in a diverse society? And, and how does that affect then how we start to try and impact society with Christian values? Mm-hmm. Well, I think, uh, f- first of all, 
he's giving expression to the sense that uh, in this country, the Christian values that shaped our institutions and our social life have been collapsing. Um, and with uh, the philosophy of multiculturalism as an ideological perspective, uh, you begin to erode the possibility of a common discourse uh, and uh, you sort of create um, monocultural and religious ghettos uh, so that the idea of a sort of a shared story, a shared narrative uh, disappears. And actually that produces uh, intolerance uh, because uh, the, the ability to be able to have a reasonable conversation with somebody uh, and um, discuss points of view and um, and even agree to disagree at the conclusion of that is dependent on uh, the idea that there is a underlying your discourse is a shared set of of convictions um, and uh, without that you just have interest groups screaming at each other basically and you have a radical sort of polarization so I think that's probably what he's getting at now I would say that uh, at a more if I can say worldviewish or philosophical level um, the UK does have uh, increasingly, at least among what I would call a governing or, or a ruling elite, a, a largely secular um, humanistic confession, a, a sort of polytheistic, I mean, multiculturalism is a polytheistic confession uh, that really believes in the ultimate sovereignty of man and the will of man uh, and his political processes. Um, and within that, you've got a vast diversity in this country now, the sort of smorgasbord of spirituality and, and, and religious uh, ideas um, coalescing. And that d does uh, mean there's a very significant challenge. I think Tim Ferran talked about liberalism eating itself uh, when it doesn't have this shared narrative. And I think he's, I think he's right about that. Um, the, that presents unique, certainly unique challenges for Christians, but also a unique opportunity. So, yeah, talk about that opportunity, because some people would say Christians seeking to bring their values into the public square, bring their principles into legislation, are just another voice, another interest group shouting and trying to impose their views. What does Christianity have to add to that context? Mm -hmm. Well, of course, foundationally, and I think Tim Ferran touched on this himself, there is no such thing as neutrality. So no Christian, I think, should pretend to being uh, neutral and to accessing some kind of... Uh, abstract principle of cosmic reason that coheres in their mind and in the universe and, and that everybody can agree on. I mean, I think that that sort of modernist myth has been exposed really for what it is. Uh, so I think we do need to engage um, honestly and practically and unashamedly from what we can call a, a Christian uh, value base or virtue base. I prefer the term virtue to values because values are things you sort of pick and choose. Virtues are things that transcend uh, personal taste and preference. And of course, as Christians, we believe in, in an objective realm and a, a, a creator God and therefore objective moral law and moral norms, which we believe are for the benefit of all and produce human flourishing in every way. So we, we come to it not as a special interest in simply vying for our own uh, good and our own 
uh, interests, but actually for the good of all. And the, the sphere sovereignty that I was talking about earlier, this structural pluralism, I think actually is the, is the, is the view of social life, the, the norms that God has established, that actually allows maximal freedom, where these different spheres of life aren't allowed to envelop and swallow one another, and a maximal space for freedom is created. Nonetheless, unless we can recover a common narrative underlying that, because, of course, the very idea of sphere sovereignty presupposes, as I said at the beginning, the creator God and the lordship of Christ and total sovereignty not residing in any human institution, which can be then used as a tool of tyranny, but in the transcendent God to whom kings and commoners are all accountable. And that was the very kind of birth of parliamentary democracy and freedom was in that idea that the absolute power of monarchy was broken only by the fact that the recognition that we are all under under God. So I think Christians have to engage, and we have an opportunity to engage, I think, even though it's going to be tough, from a, from a distinctly Christian standpoint, to say that this is for the good and the blessing and the freedom of all. Uh, and therefore, I think we can look back at our confessional past in Britain and in the um, English-speaking world um, and look at the freedoms that that bequeathed the world and not be ashamed of it uh, and uh, heritage is on uh, our side uh, that the institution's history is on our side N holding our hands up where there were failures and, and abuse and mistakes and, and errors and so forth no generation is perfect we've got it wrong we've got our blind spots past generations had theirs um, but we have an opportunity i think in a spiritually uprooted culture that is very confused um, you know better than me that politicians arrive here uh, in, in London at Westminster and very often have not even thought about the major issues that are coming up in the House, especially the, the, the big moral issues, um, and need guidance. Well, who's going to provide that? Well, historically in this country, that, that fell to the church. The, the prophetic and priestly role of the church was to provide guidance and preach the grace of God in the midst of our sin and mistakes. And I think we need to be... Uh, as unashamed as any Muslim today is unashamed about their, or as any secular humanist is unashamed about trumpeting the secular character of Britain, we can talk about um, the the Christian character of our contribution. And I believe I'm absolutely convinced that in in the end, um, because Christ is the truth and uh, God's creational norms hold and impinge upon every human being in all of their relations that just as the Christian gospel won the dispute with paganism 16 centuries ago, uh, we will win the dispute again. Now, Joe, you're normally based in, in Canada. Uh, you're currently uh, in England, which is why we're here. Uh, and one of the things you're here to talk about is, is a book you've recently written, um, Gospel Witness, Defending and Extending the Kingdom. Um, tell us a little bit about that. I'm sure our listeners will be interested to hear uh, about what you cover in that. Sure. So uh, Gospel Witness is a follow-up book to my, my previous little book called uh, Gospel Culture. And the purpose of these is to really show that um, the gospel, the, the claims of Christ, uh, have uh, a relevance not simply for the Church Institute, but for every aspect of life, hence Gospel Culture, Gospel Witness. And in Gospel Witness, what I'm trying to do is build a, uh, uh, a sort of foundational case for... Um, helping the believer understand what is the what is the nature of the encounter between the Christian and the non-Christian when we are trying to share our faith. What's the nature of that encounter? 
um, at its root as a religious encounter, um, as a faith encounter, as a conflict of worldviews. And then with the rest of the book, I try and uh, unpack the three dominant worldviews that confront us today, what we might call a, uh, a sort of secular humanism, a powerful secular humanism, uh, a, a pagan spirituality that's resurgent uh, very much in the West. Um, there have been sociologists who've talked about the Hinduization of the Western world and um, Islam. And I look at those three uh, sort of worldviews that are the ones that really surround the Christian today in their encounter with not um, non-belief, but with unbelief uh, and uh, how we go about uh, addressing those uh, three challenges to the gospel. Fantastic. Joe, thanks so much for your time. My privilege. Thank you. We hope you've enjoyed this special episode of the podcast for Cultural Reformation. Please take a moment to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or Google Play Music, and give us a rating or a review. Those things help more people to find us. For more Ezra Institute resources, please visit www.ezrainstitute.ca. Thank you for listening to this message brought to you by the Ezra Institute for Contemporary Christianity. Please feel free to share it with friends, but do not charge for or alter the material in any way without the express written consent of the EICC. Thank you.